This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We are so grateful you are here today on this beautiful day in April to enjoy the Bible line with us. If you're a new listener, uh, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Sometimes there's an issue in life or ministry or a biblical text you're trying to understand in terms of its um, interpretation and application for life. If we can be of help, again, the local 843 South Carolina Exchange, wherever you may be listening, is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. If you call live, we give you preference. Uh, Many call live and don't want to go on the air and are simply comfortable dictating their question. Well, we're happy to receive it that way as well. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. All right. Yes, sir. We already have two people waiting online to go live, and we'll go to Pierre first. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Good morning. Uh, Pastor Brogy, let me start by saying I love your teaching. You are just spot on. We need more uh, preachers like you. Thank you for what you do. And uh, my question is, in Genesis 21, um, referencing Ishmael, uh, where God tells Hagar that he will make a great nation of him. Mm-hmm. And my question, I'm very confused about whether or not um, he is the patriarch of Islam or not. Good question. So uh, when you read Genesis 21, it's kind of interesting because sometimes people will take uh, Romans 9, where you know it describes you know Isaac being the son of promise, and like Ishmael was a recipient for hell, though he's not specifically named, uh, but he's certainly Abraham's son. Uh, Abraham loved him. It's obvious from his response when the Lord uh, speaks about uh, Ishmael not being the son of promise, Abraham being the father of the faith, no doubt influenced Ishmael. I have no doubt we'll see Ishmael in heaven. Nonetheless, he was not the son of promise, Uh, God can say in one sense that Abraham had only one son, as the New Testament affirms, in the sense that, though he obviously had more, because even after uh, Sarah died, he married Keturah and had many more children. But lay that aside, he was uh, the son of promise. uh, Ishmael was not. But God promised to make him a great nation, and so, of course, he had 12 children, like Jacob had 12 children that formed the 12 tribes of the nation Israel. Ishmael had 12 children that really formed the Arab nations. And in the course of time, uh, certainly many of the Arab nations have embraced Islam. Islam, of course, doesn't come until 600 years after Christ's ascension, thereabouts, And so uh, it gradually grew. And so if you go to the Arab nations of the world, there are either Christians 
which were forever the majority until the last really 300 years where that is slowly and gradually flipped, especially in the last 100 years because uh, Christians, sadly, in many parts of the world have stopped having children biologically. And so the opportunity to impact the next generation for leadership has been greatly diminished. Where Arabs, wow, you know, they have kids off the roof. And uh, when you look at some of the demographics of the Arab nations of the world and you look at the number of people who are below the age of 30, it's absolutely explosive. When you have the majority of a nation who's under the age of 30, you can see the potential for multiplication. So while, it, while Ishmael was indeed a great nation, it doesn't mean that all of his descendants would be believers. Though there are certainly, like you go to Egypt today and there's the a Coptic church. And sadly, in some place in the world, the Coptic church is just like, you know, Orthodox or Roman Catholic and that they're Christianized, but they're not born again. But in Egypt, you're talking about real, genuine, born-again, blood-bought believers who embrace Jesus as Lord, so much so that when uh, they laid up you know, all the, lined up all those uh, Coptic Christians on a beach. Uh, they, the Muslims cut their heads off, but they were willing to die for the cause of Christ. So it doesn't mean in making him a great nation that all of his descendants would be believers any more than it means that all of Abraham's descendants were believers. When they left Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. And God actually tells us in the prophet Zechariah that two-thirds of the Jewish people will perish during the time of Jacob's trouble, during the time of the Great Tribulation period. Why will they perish? Well, I I imagine some will perish for the simple reason that uh, the persecution that comes upon Tribulation saints, Jew and Gentile alike, that would be a certain percentage, but many will perish just because they are part of an unbelieving world. So only a third will come through the Great Tribulation period. But when you go to Israel today... Uh, obviously, the nation is largely in unbelief. Uh, there's approximately 30,000 born-again completed Jews that live in Israel today. But out of the 7 million Jews, that's just a fraction. In fact, some of the most uh, worldly Jews are in Tel Aviv, where, man, you feel like you're in San Francisco with the gay pride and everything else that they um, you know, put forth and just gross sexual immorality. It's really decadent, which bothers extremely the Orthodox Jews who, you know, they revere God, but they're not born again yet. They have not believed in Jesus and their salvation and no one else, but there's coming a day when they will. And of course, God will complete and finish the great commission through the Jewish people. So Ishmael was indeed a great nation and God blessed him and multiplied him. And like, uh, like the Jewish nation, eventually most of his descendants, like most of Abraham's descendants, have turned from the living God. Uh, that can certainly change. And so there are Muslims, some of the greatest number percentage of converts are coming from the Muslim community because they are so disillusioned. And of course, during the time of the tribulation, we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are evangelized. You know, we speak of the fulfillment of the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 24. And in the Olivet Discourse, um, Jesus gives some of the things that will happen and unfold 
during the time of the Great Tribulation. And we like to sometimes make some of these quote-unquote birth pangs uh, for today, but in the truest sense, it's not until after the rapture of the church that the world goes into labor, if we can use that, and with increased intensity and frequency, the signs that are unfolded in Matthew 24 happen. And then he says, right before the midpoint of the tribulation, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I'm assuming that many of Ishmael's descendants will be included in that. You know, Israel surrounded by 100 million Arabs, and many uh, hate them, but not all of them. Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see even just to think for a moment about President Trump and some of the peace accords that he made, say, with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is not one of the nations that are, are destined to go against Israel. Uh, in the Ezekiel 38-39 war. So it's it's interesting to see some of the nations that he made a peace accord with. The only one that agreed to a peace accord um, that would be included in the Ezekiel war was Sudan, and many think that they did that only for economic reasons. And then when they had a gathering after Trump left office of the nations of the peace accord, the only nation that didn't show up was Sudan because they're prophesied to go against Israel. But anyway, that's a great question. You're really thinking, and by the way, you might, might be helpful to you because I cover it in much more depth. Uh, the very question you ask, I've preached through verse by verse by verse, the entire book of Genesis. And so for those who are listening, there is a phone app. If you go to the app store, just type in search the scriptures uh, you can pull up the phone app and you can listen to it while you're driving down the road or cutting the grass or whatever you're doing. So good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Amy is on the line standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Um, I've been listening uh, to the Bible line for a few weeks now and really enjoy it. So thank you for your insight. Uh, I wrote down my question, so I'll just read it. Um, I had a question about a study that I've been doing by a man named Lars Anarsen, who is a believer who lives in Jerusalem and comments on the weekly Torah portions that the Jews read. Um, and as far as I can see, he's a solid believer um, who believes that salvation is by faith in Christ and by grace alone. And I've, I've been a believer for about 30 years now, and I'm very familiar with the scriptures and have been really enriched by his insight into um, Hebrew words and culture and as well as insight into Leviticus and in particular the sacrificial system. So my question is, um, I'm starting to understand that I think he believes that Jewish believers should follow some of the law and Gentile believers should follow the three commands written to Gentile believers in Acts 15, 20. Um, he also said that Paul continued to sacrifice in the temple, um, and it's found in Acts twenty-one sixteen and twenty-four seventeen. But that seems to me that um, Paul was doing that so that he might be a Jew to the Jews, that he might save some. Um, so I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, and also, um, what are your thoughts, if you know him, on uh, Jonathan Kahn? So that's my question, and I, I'll just hang up. Okay, Amy, wow, some, a lot of questions there, but some really uh, some good ones. So there are some largely non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who are advocating for the practice of the various feasts that God has you know, ordained for Israel. 
And then there are some Jewish believers, like the one you mentioned, who are advocating for their practice. And to use Paul as an example, I think, would be uh, to distort what he was doing. You're absolutely right. He argues to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all men, that I might win some. To those under the law, I became like those under the law, though myself not under the law, and so on. And so Paul was not advocating, of course, salvation by the law, but he was advocating that when he could adapt to a um, Jewish or Gentile practice without compromising his morality or the commandments of God, then he would do so in order to win those people to Christ. Um, He even argues, for instance, to the Corinthians about, you know, food that is placed before you and you don't know that it's been, you know, sacrificed to an idol and you just eat it and you enjoy it and you thank God for it and you're You bless it. However, if you discover that it has been dedicated to an idol, then you refrain because you don't want to give credence to idolatry. So, again, Paul was uh, even admonishing the Gentile pagans to do what they could in order to win their lost friends for Christ. Now, with that said, uh, someone, in fact, recently called me from a New England state, and I ended up calling them back, and their question dealt with the same thing. Well, I think that, you know, Jewish believers today should be practicing the, uh, the, the feasts that God ordained, the force, you know, a spring feast and the three fall feasts. And I said, well, how are they going to do it? The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., So how are you going to practice Passover? You're going to bring a Passover lamb to the temple that doesn't exist? And so I think God in annihilating the temple and allowing it to be destroyed, though Titus Vespucian, when they attacked Israel, said, preserve the temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Nonetheless, it was destroyed. And in destroying it, of course, Jesus prophesied it would happen, that not one stone would stand upon another. He obliterated the possibility for those feasts in the truest sense to be practiced because they all involved uh, doing something very specifically in reference to the temple. Now, with that said, I'm not opposed to Jewish believers using the various feasts that God gave to speak into them prophetically the four spring feasts that really are unfolding now in this time of year around what we call Resurrection Sunday. So, you know, Jesus, not by accident, died on Passover. He's buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's raised on the Day of First Fruits that Sunday and on Pentecost 50 days later. Again, these are Jewish festivals, the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of God is sent. And so, It would be a great tool to say, well, here is the spring feast, and let's see if Jesus fulfilled them as the promised Messiah. Because Jesus said, again, the scriptures speak of me. And so they do indeed speak of him. And we could even look at the fall feasts and see their prophetic significance in terms of what what they'll mean in terms of the return of Jesus Christ from heaven and teaching tools. But can we practice them in the fullest sense? No, you really can't, uh, though Jews attempt to do it today. And so, you know, when I'm, I, I sat at a Jewish uh, Sabbath meal and we got into a discussion and I said, well, how can you really like um, 
do what God commands you to do, say, with the blood sacrifices. Well, we don't have a temple to do that, but we sacrifice in other ways where we give up things, almost like a Catholic Lent uh, that Catholics practice during this time of year. Well, that's not what God said. God specifically dictated the shedding of blood, and, and it's a really bloody sacrificial system because it shouts death and the need for atonement. Uh, Jonathan Kahn, really um, a controversial somewhat guy. I, I don't ascribe to a lot of the things he teaches. I think he's just in error. He uses a certain degree of sensationalism that draws in crowds. It, um, you know, it's easy to use sensationalism to teach. And so this question came up last week. Someone asked about the birth pangs and why I thought that they were really not what we're seeing today, but really illustrative of what will happen during the time of Jacob's trouble. And I brought up Hal Lindsey, who said, hey, look at all the earthquakes we're having. Look at all these, you know, famines that are happening in the world. And this is it. And he even all but date set it, for which, to his credit, he apologized a year or so ago and uh, said he was wrong in doing that. But it sold millions of books and made him a multimillionaire. Sensationalism sells. It fills auditoriums. That's not to say that there's not any significance with some of the uh, wars, so to speak, and rumors of wars and growing famines. And even our president came out a week or so ago saying that we may be approaching a time of world famine. Um, you know, but those aren't the birth pangs. That are, those things are um, indicative of the fact that there's a pregnancy. But the birth pangs don't start until the rapture of the church and during the seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation. And it's not by accident that the descriptions that are given in the first half of Matthew 24 up until verse 15 perfectly fit the seal judgments of Revelation 6. And then there was an event that Daniel pinpoints right in the middle of the seven years, as does John in the Revelation, where the Antichrist goes into the temple and commits the abomination of desolation and then Jesus said, when this happens, look out, because tribulation goes to great tribulation. In fact, when that happens, again, it coincides with the revelation, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. It's almost like your breath is taken away, because unlike the seal judgments, where you can only see one at a time, when the seventh seal is broken, in the seventh seal are the seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls. In the trumpet and bowl judgments, you can see the whole program from there on out. And it is so chilling in terms of the death rate, the destruction that comes upon the planet. It just, it just creates 30 minutes of silence in heaven. But again, it's not by accident. So from verse 15, it brings us all the way until... Uh, the Lord Jesus comes from, from heaven. So these are great questions, and I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, at the last uh, minute of our last program, we received a call from an individual who wanted to know who are those that are mentioned in the great falling away of Second Thessalonians 2. And uh, are people who are not returning to church post-COVID the beginning of that great falling away. 
Well, it, it's a good question. Um, we speak of a coming apostasy. So let me just turn there for just a moment. Um, here, here, here's the deal, just to put it contextually, uh, within the church at Thessalonica. Uh, they were experiencing tremendous hardship. In fact, uh, he says in chapter 1, he said, um, he speaks of your perseverance and your faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So this was a church that came under really intense persecution. And then he adds, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. When people suffer under persecution and they persevere, that's an indication that they're genuine believers. Those Coptic Christians that I mentioned earlier from the first question who would not renounce Christ at the cost of their own lives and had their heads cut off, that was an indication of perseverance. And interesting, Jesus mentions it as well in Matthew 24. For after all, he then adds, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted into us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So he's saying, look, uh, you're under persecution. God sees it. God sees what happens to his people. And someday justice is coming because God will afflict those who afflict you. So again, you can see the genesis of their question. Like, did we misunderstand something, Paul? Could we actually be in that time frame where, in pers- where persecution will be at the highest level the world will have ever seen? And so he opens chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. This is the rapture when we're gathered together with Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He doesn't say where you are, I will be. That's the second coming when Jesus plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and he comes to the earth. But where he is, the place he's going to prepare, we're going to be. So he's speaking of our gathering together to him, that one, you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it, the day of the Lord, it will not come as an italics in the NASB, but it's implied. It's added there to smooth out the reading from Greek because what's implied in Greek you don't always see in English. It would read without that for let no one in any way deceive you for unless the apostasy comes first. But again, it's contextually related to the preceding statement, the day of the Lord. So he speaks of our gathering together. That's the rapture. And what some people confuse, and so they make themselves post-tribulationists, is that they think, well, the day of the Lord is the rapture, and it's not. If you look up the phrase, the day of the Lord, and if you have a computer concordance, you can 
Google, so to speak, or search the day of the Lord. And interestingly, it has a really negative side of terror, and it has a very positive side of marvelous blessing. And of course, biblically, the day of the Lord mimics a Jewish day. The Jewish day starts at sundown, and it goes from sundown the next day. And so Jews, when the sun begins to set, they prepare. Uh, if you're in Israel, and we're going to Israel, God willing, in just just next month, um, we'll go to the Western Wall. And if you're there on a Friday night, uh, the Jews are preparing themselves spiritually. Thousands will go to the Western Wall. But then as the sun gets darker and darker, they head home, and they want to be in their home by the start of Sabbath. And then it gets dark, and Sabbath goes all the way until sundown the next day. Well, the day of the Lord is a protracted period of time. And sometimes the phrase is used that way even in English. We speak of the day of your youth. We're not saying you are a youth for one day, but that time frame known as the day of your youth. And so I think we're in the shadows of the tribulation. Things are getting darker. There's a pregnancy, so to speak, that's evident. And when the rapture happens, it will get very dark, and the worst time in human history will unfold. And Jesus said it will be so terrible that unless those days had been cut short, no person would have remained alive on the earth. We've never had a place like that, a time like that in all of human history. So this is a unique time that is still yet in the future. And then, of course, at the second coming, it's glorious for a thousand years for the reign of the Messiah on the earth. The reign of the Messiah on the earth is an Old Testament doctrine. The length is revealed to us in the New Testament as being a mele, Latin millennium, for the Greek word for a thousand. So it's going to be a thousand years. What happens at the end of the thousand years? There's another war where Satan, who had been... Uh, in prison for a thousand years, is loosed, and he tempts the nations of the world, which, by the way, demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because if the church is here for the time of the great tribulation, and the rapture and the second coming are one event, then we're caught up in the air, we do a U-turn, we come right back to earth, And if we are translated in the twinkling of an eye and we enter into the kingdom of God in resurrected bodies, then we'll be like the angels. We won't be able to have children. Uh, We won't procreate. Um, And so who are the people who at the end of the thousand years that Satan tempts? And why does Christ need to rule the world during the millennial reign with a rod of iron? Because for the simple reason that we are translated, we come back with Christ at the second coming, and then those saints who are one to the Lord, people see the word saint and they think, oh, those are the church saints. No, there's Old Testament saints. The term is used in the Old Testament about the saints of the Lord. It's used of church saints, so the saints who are at Corinth or Philippi, and it's used of people converted during the time of the Great Tribulation, Tribulation saints. Tribulation saints, unlike church saints, will enter the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies, 
They will repopulate the earth. And just because they're believers and secure eternally doesn't mean that the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are born through their loins are automatically believers. They will have to make a decision, and not all will decide. And that's why Satan, at the end of the thousand years, is loosed, and so it will get dark again. So the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. It's not the rapture. It's a protracted period of time that starts with the tribulation. It gets bright. It gets dark again at the end. So his point is, you aren't in the day of the Lord. You didn't miss the rapture. How do you know? Let no one in any way deceive you, for unless the apostasy comes first, and you'll notice this is articular, not apostasy, but the apostasy. We've always had apostasy, so to speak, in the history of the church, but false prophets also arose among the people. I Speaking of the Old Testament times, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. By the way, he's describing unbelievers who are bought with the blood of Christ because the atonement of Christ is for everyone. It's not wasted blood because it becomes the basis of condemnation for those who reject him. So those who believe in a particular or limited atonement have real problems with Second Peter 1. But there's always been false teachers who've drawn people away. And Paul speaks of that in First Timothy as well. But this is the articular use, the apostasy. So there's coming the apostasy of all apostasies. And of course, um, the revelation unfolds for us how it will happen. The Antichrist will come on the scene. He will create a system where you cannot buy or sell anything unless you are united to him with a mark. And so we've seen even this growing globalism and world control through things like COVID. And COVID is just kind of a predecessor to what's coming down the road. You can see how it will all happen. Um, my, my son went to Boston and not long ago, and COVID was still kind of raging, and he couldn't eat anywhere unless he had a vaccination card. You know, and it was, he said, I, I can't believe it. You know, I can't go out to a restaurant and eat. And I wanted to eat at some of these famous Boston locations. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that are coming. And so the Antichrist will come. There'll be the apostasies of apostasies. People will choose to have their stomach full over beheading because that is what is going to happen. So the apostates are those, again, the word apostasia means to fall away. So what are they of falling away? They're falling away from the living God. There are certainly those who are Christianized, who have walked up to the edge of the Christian faith, but have never been born again. And those folks who have heard the truth will indeed fall away for all of eternity. You know, we speak of people who are converted during the time of the tribulation period, but we need to be careful that we're not giving people some false hope where someone says, well, you know, if, if, uh, if, if you born-agains are right and this rapture happens, then I'll believe in Jesus. Well, number one, if you don't believe in Jesus under favorable conditions where your head is not threatened, I doubt you will under unfavorable. But that's really to misrepresent the text because people who have heard the truth because they love evil— will believe a lie because they will experience the deluding influence. Now, God alone knows those who have clearly heard the gospel. And so no doubt there will be people who have not heard the gospel in clarity and in power who will be converted. They've only been Christianized. 
But those who have heard the gospel and made no decision will make a decision, and they will follow the Antichrist along with multitudes across the world. Great question. You might want to listen to my series on the Revelation. Search the Scriptures app. You can download it and uh, listen to uh, the sermon on Revelation 13. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Anthony on line one. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Um, Dr. Brogy, I know that when we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And he says also that he will never leave us or forsake us. My two-part question is, can we as Christians go about our lives every day without um, a genuine sense of God's closeness and his presence? And the second part of the question is, is it fair to to ask or to say to someone, when did you last feel the presence of the Lord? That's my question. Okay. So, wow, that's, that's a great question, Anthony. I appreciate it very, very much. So, of course, um, Paul says in Ephesians 1, and he's really drawing out what Jesus had already taught uh, as they left the upper room and they were on their way first to where he prayed his high priestly prayer. And then when he left that spot and ended up in Gethsemane, two specific locations. And along the way, he taught them a lot of things and some great truth. And Paul kind of kicks off of that. And he says, look, you also have listened to the message of truth. Having, you know, believed you were sealed with the Holy spirit of promise And so you're right. The moment someone believes they are given the Holy Spirit, he comes to live inside of us. And the scripture affirms in Ephesians 4.30, we're sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, Jesus in John 14 and then again in John 16 uh, speaks of the Holy Spirit who will come and he'll be with you forever. So he's God's guarantee that the one who began this good work will indeed complete it. But with that said, the scripture would make a a sharp distinction between being indwelt by the Spirit. That's technically called the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism, the sealing, the gifting of the Spirit all happen in a moment's time. Uh, Whereas the filling of the Spirit is a progressive ministry that he has. So interestingly, after Pentecost, we're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. It's assumed And so even in one of the most um, compromised churches in all the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says of the Corinthians, for we have all been baptized by one spirit. So in one sense, there was a time in human history when the baptism of the spirit was future. And so Jesus could uh, speak of it in those terms as John the Baptist. And so even at the ascension, when the apostles are there on the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that he's going to return to at the second coming. Uh, It says that, uh, so when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And they say that on the, in response to a statement that is, he had just made. 
he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. The Father had promised. It's called the New Covenant. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And it's stated in passages like Jeremiah 31 and in the prophet Ezekiel. And, and of course, the New Testament tells us that any Gentile can share in this new covenant that God had promised to the Jews. And, of course, the Jews in the fullest sense are yet to experience the new covenant. They were a minority of believers in the first century because he came to his own, his own received him not. But what's interesting is the question they ask because Jesus said, look, you're not to leave Jerusalem until you receive, you wait for what the Father has promised, uh, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, 10 days later, that promise is fulfilled. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Why would they ask that question? Because when you read the passages in the Old Testament that deal with the coming kingdom, and again, you know, some of the folks in Reformed theology, they have to say, well, I guess God just not going to keep those promises and you know, he speaks of this coming kingdom when, like, the waters, you know, cover the sea. So will there be a knowledge of the living God, and there will be this incredible work of the Holy Spirit? And so they're thinking, well, maybe this is uh, God's going to fulfill his kingdom at this point. And it's a legitimate question that they ask. And, by the way, if the kingdom promises concerning Israel had been obliterated because of their unbelief, this would be a perfect time for Jesus to jump in and say, well, no, the church is the new Israel. God's done with Israel. Forget those questions. No, he, he, he doesn't deny that. He just says, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the earth. That's the baptism of the Spirit. We need that. We now have it on this side of Pentecost, the moment we believe. So we're never commanded to get the Holy Spirit. Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not one of His. You're not born again. And so my dear Pentecostal friends who historically say, well, first you were saved, and then after you were saved, you later get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You get the Spirit after conversion, um, then, of course, they kind of confused themselves, and as time progressed, they changed their doctrine, and Pentecostal doctrine then said, well, no, you get the Holy Spirit at conversion, but you get this deeper work of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by speaking in tongues. And, I, and again, that certainly happened on the day of Pentecost. They spoke in tongues, glossolia, dialectos, not just tongues, but dialects within tongues, real languages and dialects within the language. That was a miracle of the gift, not the kind of uh, gibberish that Pentecostals and Charismatics speak today. And by the way, the things that they do, speaking in tongues, fainting on the floor, they call it slain in the spirit, shaking uncontrollably. I can show you um, Hindus in India that do the exact same thing, no different, identical. And they really diminished the power of God and the miraculous na- nature of what happened at, at Pentecost. So the baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of conversion. But we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And so, Anthony, really, among other things, what you're raising is, is that there are believers 
who have been born again and dwelt by the Spirit, secured for heaven. He's our pledge, our down payment, our earnest money, so to speak, that God's going to complete our salvation. And that while they are in union with Christ, they're not necessarily in communion. And things have clouded their heart. Sin has entered in. And that intimacy and that closeness with the Lord has been lost. He hasn't forsaken them, (laughs) so to speak. They have somewhat forsaken him. They have chosen not to walk in intimacy with the Lord. And sometimes it happens very slowly, very subtly. Little areas of compromise come in the human heart and things that they wouldn't have watched in television. Well, I'll just watch this. It's not too bad. And before you know it, they're watching more and more trash or listening to music that they shouldn't be listening to. And they spend more time on their you know, Facebook page than they do in Holy Scripture. And their heart's just grown away, and it's distant. And they're out of fellowship with the Lord, so they don't really sense God's power and God's um, blessing on their life. And that's really sad when that happens. I have a message on this. It's on the Spirit-filled life. It's available through Search the Scriptures. And if someone is listening to me today and you say, you're speaking about me, Pastor, well, God can fix that. And so there are actually four commands in the New Testament that summarize our responsibility to the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and so do the Spirit. So we are not to grieve the Spirit, which we grieve Him when we do things that we shouldn't do. And the solution is to confess all known sin in your life. Uh, We quench the Spirit when we are unwilling to do the things that we should do in the positive realm. And so some Christians, they're, you know, not watching trash on TV, but neither are they willing to share their faith. Well, they've suffocated, so to speak, the Spirit's work in their life. They've thrown a bucket of cold water on the fire within their heart because they're unavailable to do positively. Uh, You come to church, I don't feel like singing. It doesn't matter whether you feel like singing, you're commanded to sing. Sing to one another and to the Lord. That's a command. Um, I don't have a good voice. I don't care if you have a good voice. It doesn't have to be a good voice. You make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Look, if, if, you're, if you've got some problem with your larynx, lip sing. I don't care what you do, but, but obey the Lord so you don't want to quench him. You want to walk by him as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You admitted that you were spiritually bankrupt and that only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ could save you. You put your full weight in what he already accomplished because you knew that it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. You go to a doctor when you're sick, not when you're well. You come to a savior when you realize you can't save yourself. And so just as a man depends on air to live, you depend upon the Holy Spirit as you receive the Lord in brokenness. Now you walk in him. It's not you can't be busy for God, but if you're busy for God and you're not really seeking him and saying, Lord, you need to help me this morning with this task I have. You need to empower me. You need to give me your filling spirit. And and then you sow to the spirit because the spirit and you sow to the spirit with the word of God because your relationship to the Spirit is indexed to the sword of the Spirit. Just as there are two parents in physical conversion, there are two parents in spiritual conversion, and there are two parents, so to speak, in spiritual growth, sanctification. 
So you're born again by the Spirit. You're born again by the Word of God, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. And likewise, you're sanctified by the Spirit, and you're sanctified by the Word of God because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew your mind, to help you to know what you should do and what you should be like. And so it fits hand in glove. And when we understand these basic principles, then we begin to walk with God we experience the fullness of his grace and his blessing on our life. Great question. Let's go to the next was, one. Was the second part of his question, is it okay to ask Christians if they are sensing his presence? Well, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we're, um, we, we love one another. We're members of one another. We're accountable to one another. And sometimes a very gentle thing to do is to say, you know, uh, you know Fred or Mary or whatever it is, you know, how, how are you doing spiritually? Is there anything I can pray for you in, you know, are, do you feel like you're, you're walking closely to the Lord and it's your brother in Christ. I, I want to be an encouragement to you. So no, that's not inappropriate. You don't have that kind of relationship with everyone and it might be intrusive and you might slam the door shut before you have an opportunity to minister because maybe it's not your place. But yeah, with the leading of the spirit of God, um, Certainly you should do that, especially those whom God has given you to disciple, which, of course, the first row would be your children and your grandchildren. Those are your greatest disciples. So when we think of discipleship, we shouldn't think of the guy down the street or the neighbor across. They might be people that God would want you to build into, but first and foremost, it starts with your family. And that's where, sadly, there's been a lot of neglect in our day. All right, very good. Luke from Reader, North Dakota, would like you to please clear up Galatians 5, 4 to 7. What does it mean to fall from grace? If it's referring to people who were never saved, uh, who turned from Jesus in verse, is verse 7 referring to others who ran well? Well, Galatians is an interesting book. And when you read the opening of the book, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, in what sense were they deserting him who called them by the grace of Christ? We'll see in the, <laughs> excuse me, in the sanctification process. They were deserting him for a different gospel. These are not people who had renounced the death, burial, and the resurrection. Nonetheless, they ended up embracing some teaching by false teachers whom they applied in the realm of sanctification, and they were called Judaizers. And these Judaizers came into the church and basically said that for Gentiles, and this is largely a Gentile region, Galatia, that Paul ministered in, that for you to truly, you know, walk with the Lord, then you need to be circumcised. You need to become a proselyte, a Jew, so to speak. You need to come through the vestibule of Judaism to come into Christianity. And Paul said, look, that's, that's not right. In fact, he then goes on to say, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one which you've received, he is to be a curse, as we've said it before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So Paul, in dealing with the sanctification process, 
brings it back to how they were justified. And so he argues in the next few chapters that you're not justified by any work, but you're justified purely by the grace and mercy of God Almighty. And so, for instance, in the second chapter, he'll say, um, he makes this uh, statement. Let me just back it up here. He says, yeah, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, look, we are of Jewish birth. We're not sinners from among the—we're we're Jewish sinners who've been saved. He's not denying that he's sinful, but he's saying we came from the different realm. We came from Judaism. Nevertheless, with that said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So he's arguing, look, even though we're of the covenant community of people, we recognize that we weren't saved by any act of obedience to the laws of the Old Testament, but purely we we're justified, declared righteous by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so he said, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. And then he goes on and he, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you could be saved by good works, paraphrase, there was no need for Jesus to die. Christ is dead in vain, the King James renders it. So he takes it back to how you started so that they understand the basis by which they proceed. What we just echoed from Colossians 2, 6 is you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So when he comes to the fifth chapter, he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, standing firm, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So again, we don't make ourselves free. We're not justified by works. Freedom is a gift from Jesus Christ. It's given to us. It's received on the basis of grace through faith. Technically, we're not saved by faith alone. That's to technically misrepresent the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by the death of Christ, as Machen in his classic work, What is Faith, underscored, George Gratian Machen. He said, faith is just a channel that receives what Jesus did. There's no merit in faith. Faith is not a work. It's just a channel that receives the finished work. And so he's arguing here that um, they have subjected themselves to a yoke of slavery. In the Jerusalem um, meeting that they had, the great convention there in Acts 15, Uh, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So there were some Jewish believers in the church who were born again, who believed you were saved by grace alone through faith alone. They didn't deny that, but they said that some of these ceremonial laws, the Gentiles needed to practice. And Paul said, absolutely not. Um, Now, interestingly, going back to an earlier question, Paul had Timothy circumcised because he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And so he was not circumcised as an infant, but he had him circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was of some value, no but to be all things to all men, so that Timothy could accompany Paul into Jewish audiences without offense and have an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus with them. And so... 
Here's his point. He says, look, I, Paul, tell you that if you have yourselves circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So he's trying to underscore that either to be saved, as he deals with in the first half of the book, or now to grow, to be sanctified by keeping the law, is like trying to free yourself from quicksand by struggling. The more you struggle, the deeper you sink. And the more you try through human effort to make yourself pleasing to the Lord, the more you're going to struggle. So you see, we don't work towards righteousness. We work from righteousness. Uh, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so in Christ, we are righteous. In Christ, we have been declared holy. We can't do anything to improve that status. And so circumcision didn't improve your status. No need, therefore, for a Gentile to be circumcised. That was not part of the moral law of God. That was part of the ceremonial law of God. Now, certainly, when he says that they have fallen from grace, he's not suggesting for one moment that they had lost their salvation. And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you read through Galatians, nine times he calls them brethren. That's a term that Paul reserves for believers. And he uses the pronoun we in association with them. Because you are sons of God, then he'll say, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts by which we crowd Abba, Father. That goes back to Anthony's question. The moment of conversion, you are indwelt by the spirit of God. And so he's not questioning their salvation. But when they choose to somehow establish favor with God by the things they do. That's called legalism. Now, sadly, today, if you have a standard, you're called legalistic, and that's pathetic. Um, Legalism is when you do something to try to earn uh, a a better standing with God. We're not working towards a better standing. We're working from a perfect standing where we are called saints of God. And so they have fallen, literally, the text says, out of grace. That is, out of the realm of grace. So instead of, as they did at conversion, admit that they were spiritually bankrupt and could only depend on Jesus to save them, to enter the kingdom of God, even so, in the process of sanctification, we need to depend upon the Spirit to live His life in and through us. Because as Jesus affirmed on that night, as a branch abides in the vine, so you abide in me. And he will declare, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a zero with a ring removed.